You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. The first thing I want to talk about this week is uh, not only how uh, others see Israel, but in general, how even those who are favorable to Israel and even Jewish students who wish to defend Israel don't really know that much about it other than it's the Jewish state. We've had uh, over the last several weeks a number of visitors, even for Shabbat meals, including Bormans uh, from uh, Utah, and we've spoken to them. And we, even those who are pro-Israel, there's a lot they simply don't know about Israel, other than the fact that it is the Jewish state. So it's, I think it's important for a lot of people, even those who are pro-Israel, to know more about the state, its history, and what it's all about here on a on a daily on a daily basis. So, just to give an idea, there is unfortunately many American universities, in particular have turned into bastions of anti-Semitism and anti-Israel lectures and anti-Israel activism. The uh, Anti-Defamation League in the United States stated that the campus anti-Israel movement frequently denigrates Zionism as inherently racist and disparages pro-Israel students at times invoking anti-Semitic tropes. So there are a lot of things about Israel that American Jews, particularly American Jewish students, should know. And indeed, the best thing, of course, would be to come and to get to know Israel. There are all kinds of organizations in particular. There's something called Birthright. And we've met these kids I don't remember the name of those who sponsor it, but it's free, uh, free uh, visits for 10 days for students. And uh, But that's really not enough, 10 days. It's, it's, if you've never been to Israel before, it's an awakening, and it generally has makes a good impression. But simply not enough. There are more facts that they should know. Because understanding Israel requires uh, intellectual honesty and an open mind. The uh, Today's world, the people in general now, and I see the news from the United States, uh, the, the, the people like to box all sub- subjects into black and white, good or bad. And uh, the world isn't simple. The world is very complex. And uh, Israel, just like any other place, is complex. There are things that Israel does that I'm not too happy about. But that's not the point. You have to see the whole picture. You have to have an open mind to accept facts. And that never a lot of things most American students in particular never heard before about Israel. They have to be intellectually honest so they can be open to arguments they haven't heard before 
and recognized there were at least two sides to every story. It, it sort of requires a sort of amount of nuance. The um, that one of the one of the things is a problem I think we've had. And I watch I watch American news, and uh, the media generally present a negative image of Israel. The the uh, Israel is generally portrayed with a bias, I think, against it by most of the world's media. I see what other people are writing about media, and we they're critical of the world's bias against Israel. The uh, the Israeli policies and Israeli actions are presented in a negative way without Israel's side of the story. The, it's interesting, many times you see headlines, uh, if the Israelis, for example, go into Gaza and uh, kill some terrorists, the, the newspapers presented like an, an Israeli attack on Gaza without essentially describing why they are going in. And the, this uh, one-sided coverage always is one-sided against Israel. The, and, and, and an attack many opponents of Israel like to use to delegitimize Israel is by stating that the Jews are a religion and religions don't deserve to have rights to a state. The, uh, but just that is simply not true. We, we Jews refer to ourselves not as a religion, but as a nation. We, we never talk about Dat Israel, the Israeli religion. We talk about Am Yisrael, the Jewish people. So uh, that is why, for example, that uh, there are, that those who claim that the Jews have no right to this land, Territ Israel, is because we're simply a religion and not a nation, and therefore, if we're coming to settle here, we're colonialists, and we don't have any correction to the land. But historical records and archaeology and international consensus all demonstrate that the Jews have a longer connection to the land of Israel than any other people around. The uh, We've been here more than 3,000 years. It's an interesting thing, by the way. There's a rule in Israel, if you're building something, let's say you're constructing a house, and I've seen this on more than one occasion. Uh, I remember in particular, it happened years ago when I was living in Rehovot, a guy uh, started uh, digging uh, for his house. And they came across uh, underground. They found uh, artifacts, and so the, the the rule is: if you find something, artifacts, for example, you have to call in the proper authorities, and to determine whether or not the, the authenticity of what you find. And I still remember there was a house in Rehovot that it only had, it was supposed to have uh, two parking places under the house. They only have one parking place because the the um, archaeological dig found that there were things under there that should be irreplaceable. They're from thousands of years ago, and and they could no longer expand their house uh, to include an extra parking space. Was, I don't know what happened financially to the guys who uh, bought the land, but 
all over Israel you find archaeological digs taking place because when you dig down we find our history and our archaeological digs show that we are not strangers to this land. We've been living here for more than 3,000 years and we have rights to this land. We're not foreign here. The they, there are people who argue, well, Zionism only started at the end of the 19th century. But that's true. This modern political Zionism started then. But Jews have been praying in this direction for since they were kicked out of this country uh, more than 2,000 years ago. So and we have records and archaeological digs that shows that almost 3,000 years ago, King David inaugurated the city of Jerusalem as capital city. Less than a mile from where I live, there is digging going on. Discoveries have been found that the, the, our history here goes back 3,000 years. But and By the way, no, nobody ever else has established Jerusalem as their capital. What happened is, in, in 1967, we simply came back to our ancient capital. Now, another thing that you see in the media, uh, that uh, you see anti-Zionism. Uh, there were members of Congress, for example, who were essentially anti-Semites, but the, the, they claimed that they're only anti-Zionists. Denying the peoplehood of the Jewish people, claiming that they are uh, don't deserve self-determination, they have no connection to their own homeland, is not simply anti-Zionism, it's anti-Semitism. Now, another thing you find, particularly in the media, that's very disturbing, is double standards. Oh, we've, we've seen all kinds of accusations made against Israeli policies. Most are simply not reflected of the truth. May, many are, are, even though true, they're out of context. And even more hold Israel to a standard high, higher than any other country is held to, to when it comes to international standards. That judging Israel with a double standard is simply anti-Semitic and reflects a dishonest approach to analyzing events that are happening. Now, the uh, we are criticized. You know, I had a friend uh, years ago who came from Helsinki, Finland, and he went home for a vacation for a couple of weeks in the summertime. This is about 40 years ago, this incident happened. And when he came back, he said, you know, it's interesting. I live in Israel for quite a few years. I never see anything about Finland on the front page or the first two or three pages of the Israeli newspaper. He said, I went back to Helsinki and I saw Israel on the front the first couple of pages of the paper all the time. People are interested in what happens in Israel, so it's important that we, uh, facts are reported from Israel. They are true facts. The, the really, the and also another thing in general when I'm talking about how Israel is seen, uh, 
there, there are great inequalities between Israelis and Palestinians. There, there are things we have to correct. I just saw in a newspaper this week that the violence that goes on in the Israeli-Arab community is really terrible. There is so far this year, more than 100 uh, people have been killed in the Arab community by other Arabs. Uh, I think Israel has been wrong in not policing the Arab areas uh, more closely. It's a problem we have. We have a large Arab population the, uh, and the, the, it, a lot of it is run by gangs, and it's something that we have to be wary of, and something has to be done about. So when you when you pick up a newspaper, particularly outside of Israel, and you read headlines about people being murdered in Israel, uh, they often don't uh, go into the details of who it is who's being murdered. Much time it's the Arabs, which is unfortunate. And something has to be done about it. But in general, when these uh, news items are outside the country, the, without detailing exactly what is happening, without the details, you get the impression that there's a lot of violence in Israel. There is not a violence in a lot of violence in Israel. There is a, a too much violence in the Arab community, and undoubtedly something has to be done about it. But to propagandize and give the impression that this is all of Israel is simply wrong. The truth of the matter is, when you, you peel away these layers of lies, and even a, a cursory survey of Palestinian Arab life under Israeli rules, that, it, that there is human rights, opportunity, and fair treatment. There are colleges here in Jerusalem, the... Um, Hebrew University College has a tremendous number of Arab students. Haifa University has a tremendous number of Arab students. Remember, there are certain departments like surveying. People learning to be surveyors are primarily, primarily Arab students, and they get a much better education here than they do in the Arab countries. So they're the... Um, you go around in here in Jerusalem and look at the way that the Arabs live. There are jobs in Israel that are available to Arabs, and the health care and the education available to Arabs is among the highest in the Middle East. You go into any hospital in Jerusalem, any hospital, and you see the overwhelming number of Arab patients because they prefer to go to Jewish hospitals than to go to hospitals under in the Arab areas, because they are treated fairly and they are treated well. The same is true, by the way. There is a tremendous number of Arab nurses, Arab doctors, and in particular, Arab female druggists. And here in Jew, I don't know if it's true in, in Tel Aviv, but here in Jerusalem, in, in many of the stores, I don't want to say most, perhaps most, you go into that the person behind the counter will be an Arab woman, pharmacist. So the, uh, and, and there's another thing too that, that really has to be mentioned. The international community 
in uh, as reflected by the way in repeated United Nations resolutions considers Israel to be an occupier of Judea and Samaria. It's what they call the West Bank. Now, the truth of the matter is, to consider Israel an occupier is inconsistent with international law. Now, Israel and the United States have some disagreements about this, but the former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, said the establishment of Israeli civilian settlements in the West Bank is not per se inconsistent with international law. There are a lot of things about Israel that people don't, don't not, do not know, and particularly young people do not know. Now, I understand, by the way, that the uh, Israeli government and the Jewish agency are spending a tremendous amount of money in Jewish education outside of Israel, and they're sending teachers from Israel to teach the Jewish community. But I think, I don't know, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar with the details, but it's very important that more Americans, not just Jewish Americans, but more Americans get to know the reality of Israel. If that means sending speakers to organizations uh, and to college and things of that nature, this kind of thing has to be done. Because if you simply read the headlines about Israel, even if you're living in America and you're Jewish, you can get the wrong impression. Knowledge of Israel and any ways to gain knowledge of Israel is a key to support for Israel. Simply a lot of people outside the country don't know about the reality of Israel. And I think it's a major uh, uh, challenge for is the government in Israel to do things about the education in America, not only of the Jewish community, but of the American community in generally about the realities of Israel. And if we simply rely on the news headlines, a distorted picture will be, will, will be will, will, of Israel will become available, only that distorted picture. We need reality of Israel to be known to the American community and particularly to the American Jewish community and to particularly to American Jewish youth. I, obviously, I'm not a person involved in how to, how to, uh, to see that this kind of thing happens. But I think it's the duty of our government to, to get the word about Israel out truthfully in places like the United States. And I don't know if there are bodies within, for example, the foreign ministry whose uh, job this is, but there's definitely a need. Again, I'm not familiar with the details, but I can see where the need is. And hopefully, now, now that I've become very aware of this problem by reading uh, the news from the United States and watching American television, I real, realize that there's a problem. And I'll see what I can find about what the Israeli government is doing 
to overcome the lack of knowledge in the United States, both in the general community and in the Jewish community, about the reality of Israel. So this is not a question of diplomacy. This is a question of education. And I'm going to see, uh, it started to bother me when I started to, to read a lot of things, uh, you know, in American newspapers and listening to American news, and I realized that it's a problem. So I bring it up to the listeners because it's on my mind. I'll see what I can do to find out what exactly, hopefully, is being done to counteract the lack of knowledge about what Israel is really like. I'll be back after the break. One Minute of Torah. The proper way to serve God can be learned from a fascinating detail in a miraculous episode in this week's Torah portion of Korach. Korach was a man who rebelled against the system of the tribe of Levi, meaning the priests and the Levites, being distinguished in their service of God. To prove that these positions were godly chosen, Moses was instructed by God to place a staff from each tribe's prince near the ark. Eleven of the twelve staffs looked the same the following morning. The one staff that had blossomed overnight, proving that his tribe was the chosen one, was indeed from the tribe of Levi. The Torah describes, It gave forth blossoms, sprouted buds, and produced ripe almonds. Almonds are unique amongst all fruits in that they are the quickest to blossom. The tribe designated to represent the Jewish nation indeed was swift and energetic in its service. Learning from the priests, we ought to emulate their speed and vigor when serving God. And when we show God that we desire a connection with Him so much that we run to fulfill His commandments and we grab every opportunity to connect to Him, we will merit that God will return this attitude and bless us quickly and wholeheartedly. With your Ein Terman of Torah, this is Chava Zikavich. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and I want to say something about the Palestinian, Palestinian Authority uh, project. I, I guess you can't call it a project or a program. It's a policy. There is a policy of the Palestinian Authority for what we call pay for slay. If an Arab kills, uh, if a Palestinian kills Jews, and he's put into jail, the Palestinian Authority pays his family a stipend. It runs into a lot of money. Uh, the details are not really important, but essentially it's what we call pay for slay. You kill a Jew and your family gets supported. In a sense, uh, that's one of the reasons why you can have a lot of Palestinians who don't have jobs, and they figured to themselves, I'll go kill a Jew, I'll kill an Israeli, they'll put me in jail, or even uh, kill me, but my family will then be supported. So it's pay for slay. Now, an exchange took place at a Senate Foreign Relations Committee on May 31st. Senator Ted Cruz, a Republican of Texas, asked for the, and there's a person called the Near Eastern Affairs <coughs> uh, uh, Chairman. Her name is Barbara Leaf. And Senator Cruz asked her if the Palestinian Authority has continued to pay imprisoned terrorists and the families of dead terrorists. And she replied in a sort of merely-mouthed way. She said, we're working to bring pay for slay to an end, period. 
That's what she said. <clears throat> and Cruz, the senator, asked if the Biden administration's efforts had succeeded, and she replied, not yet. Now, it's interesting. That might be a reasonable response if the Biden administration had been working on this problem, let's say, for a few weeks or even for a few months. But this has been going on for over five years. It was back in March 2018, five years ago, that Congress passed the Taylor Force Act. Taylor Force was an American who happened to be an American veteran, happened to be in Israel when he was killed, I think it was in Tel Aviv, by a terrorist. He was out to kill Israelis, but unfortunately Taylor Force was uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he was killed by a Palestinian terrorist. So the government, the uh, this Congress passed what's called the Taylor Force Act, which prohibits the United States to give any aid to the Palestinian Authority so long as the Palestinian Authority has this pay-for-slay uh, policy. So for the past five years, since 2018, the uh, which was two and a half years of the Trump administration, and the first two and a half years of the Biden administration, the U.S. has been claimed to be working on it. In the meantime, pay for slay in the Palestinian Authority is still going on. You murder an Israeli and your family gets compensated for it. The, 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 it, it just doesn't work. No matter how many times the Palestinian Authority-controlled media slander the United States, and they do, no matter how many times Palestinian Authority officials accuse the United States of orchestrating the 9-11 tax or poisoning Arab children, how much, how much the Palestinian Authority says bad things about the United States, the Biden administration continues to praise the Palestinian Authority and to pay its bills. This is simply wrong, really wrong. I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to be a genius to figure it out. They, they are paying people to kill Jews. And the United States is compensating them. So that's how the administration, the Biden administration, gets around the Taylor Force Act. The Taylor Force essentially, as I said a moment ago, bans U.S. aid to the Palestinian Authority. So what happens is the American money goes through all kinds of non-governmental channels to pay various expenses that the Palestinian Authority otherwise would have to pay. I don't know all the details, but I've, I've seen it written in the paper. In other words, the United States is administrations is getting around the law that says you can't give money to the Palestinian Authority as long as they pay for slave, but they're doing it. By the end of 2022, Biden had sent the Palestinian Arabs close to $1 billion in this, in this manner, something which is really wrong 
and the American citizen should know about it. Clearly, the uh, Palestinian Authority has no reason to change its policy as long as it keeps receiving money from the American administration, which is bypassing the law that was passed by Congress called the Taylor Force Act. So this hasn't persuaded the Palestinian Authority to end this pay for slay. So maybe the time has come for the administration to have some new ideas if they really wanted to stop this. First of all, stop paying the Palestinian Authority expenses. Let them pay their own bills. They should suspend U.S. assistance to the Palestinian security forces and publish a list of the names of the many Palestinian security forces who have taken part in terrorist acts. It's an open secret that many people in the Palestinian security forces are nothing more than terrorists in uniform. The American Congress should publish a list of the names of the imprisoned terrorists and dead terrorists and their families who are receiving Palestinian Authority funds, including the exact amounts they're receiving each month, because this is money being provided by the American administration. Half the meetings between the U.S. representatives and the Palestinian officials should stop. They should be halted, including the Office of the Special Representative to the Palestinian Affairs, who sits here in Jerusalem. The American government should issue a public warning to American tourists that visiting Palestinian Authority-controlled territory is dangerous since the Palestinian Authority government finances terrorism. There are people right next to uh, Jerusalem, for example, is uh, Bethlehem, and that is a a very popular place for Americans and foreign Christians to visit. It's under the Palestinian Authority, and when tourists go there, the Palestinian Authority makes money. At the same time, they're visiting uh, Bethlehem, they're visiting an area which is controlled by the Palestinian Authority, and the truth of the matter is you have no idea whether those policemen in the the uniform of the Palestinian Authority can be trusted. So the American government really should offer financial rewards for the capture of fugitive Palestinian terrorists who are involved in the murders of American citizens. Currently, the Justice Department of the United States has something called Rewards for Justice Program, and it offers rewards in Uh, In only three of those cases, even though there are many dozens of such terrorists at large, the Office of Justice for Victims of Overseas Terrorism should really publish a quarterly report on the whereabouts of Palestinian killers of Americans and what the U.S. is doing to apprehend them. Many of these Palestinians who have killed Americans have run off to places in Europe. 
the it, one of the things that the what should be done maybe a jewish organization should do it <clears throat> they should organize a conference in washington featuring israelis and americans not necessarily jews and israelis and americans who were wounded by palestinian arab terrorists or whose loved ones were murdered in terrorist attacks Unfortunately, there are a lot of people like that, and their voices should be held. Another thing that could be done to make this uh, subject public is to sponsor public memorial events honoring American victims of Palestinian Arab terrorism, of whom there are many. So, and also, the Justice Department of the United States should support legal efforts by terror victims' families to seek compensation from the Palestinian Authority for members of their families who are killed by terrorists. So, what's happening over the years is the American government, the American administrations, has simply really done nothing even though the, the law was passed, the as I said at the beginning, the uh, a law was passed, uh, the Taylor Force Act, it's five years ago, which says the Americans should not support any organization that, that fosters or pays terrorism, and yet the American government has going around this law and continues to give money to this Palestinian Authority, which the Palestinian authorities to pay the, fam to pay the family of terrorists. That is simply wrong. Uh, the the the, uh, the the American government should try whatever method is needed to get the Palestinians to stop pay for slay. It is a terrible thing when you think about it that the taxpayers' money of the American citizens is being given to the Palestinian Authority and to pay the the uh, families of murderers and terrorists and that is simply wrong i doubt very much how many americans know about this certainly congressmen know it and it continues for the last five years and that is simply wrong it's happening i guess you can say it's under the radar what is going on we're talking about billions of dollars going to the palestinian authority to pay the families of terrorists who have killed Israelis, and they've killed Americans, and the American government is paying their families, this is simply wrong. There's no two ways about it. It has to be stopped. Now, I want to go on to a different subject. Uh, the subject which I just concluded is something that, that uh, people are simply not aware about, and they should become more aware about it. U.S. taxpayer money is paying terrorist families. Simply wrong. And since I was talking about terrorism, uh, I want to say... Uh, something about another subject which doesn't get the headlines it, although it's becoming more more known, known in israel because of the numbers involved which is the following there have been more murders in the arab sector in the first five months of this year 2023 than there were in all of 2016 
There were 64 murders. We're talking about Arabs killing Arabs, and we're talking about it, not not the Palestinians. We're talking Arabs who are citizens of the state of Israel. There were uh, 64 murders in 2016, 75 murders in 2017, 74 murders in 2018. The number of people killed in the Arab community this year is on a trajectory to reach more than 200 which far outstrips the worst year of violence when 126 Israeli Arabs were killed in 2021. These numbers are simply astounding. We're talking about citizens of Israel, Arabs, who are killing other citizens of Israel, Arabs. And, and, and the representatives of the Israeli-Arab sector in the Knesset are crying out for the government and the police to do something to help them. The violence is spiraling out of control. So they came up with an idea called Safe Track. It's under responsibility of uh, uh, the... Uh, the Deputy Public Security Minister, and it includes steps aimed at dismantling organized crime in the Arab society, hitting the source of funds for organized crime, cracking down on arms smuggling, strengthening the government in the Arab governance in the Arab sector, and building trust and increasing cooperation with the Arab local authorities. The Arab members of Knesset are begging to do something, the government to do something about violence in the Arab sector. And again, as I said before, we're not talking about about um, when the area is taken over by Israel uh, in the Six Day War. We're talking about Arab who are citizens of the state of Israel. So there, there's a long term plan. It'll take a long time to implement, but in the uh, it is a very bad. This trend is very very bad. Uh, the uh, there are people who studied this problem, and it's been brought to the attention of the government. Is what happens is I think that the Arab ministers members of Knesset don't trust the government to really do something. It's not something that's high on the agenda. We're talking about Israeli citizens killing other Israeli citizens. So the uh, apparently Israel is the, the the state of Israel is a Jewish state, but we have a very large Arab population, and we have to see to it that there is no uncontrolled crime in this segment of our society. So the, uh, the Arab members of Knesset have met with the Prime Minister, but I don't think anything has really happened. The, uh, the, it's a very serious problem. So, uh, and the government is coming up with plans, but the, uh, the question is, will these plans be put into effect? And obviously, having a plan to deal with violence in the Arab community in Israel is important. You have a plan, but it's not—it's it's only on paper. It isn't going anywhere. 
So what happened is when the Arab members of Knesset met with the Prime Minister Netanyahu, he agreed to the establishment of a ministerial committee which he would chair to fight the growing epidemic of violence and crime in the Israeli-Arab society. Now, that's obviously a positive development. But in the meantime, it's only words. As each day goes by, more Arab citizens of Israel are being killed by other Arab citizens of Israel, and the vast majority of law-abiding, peace-loving members of Israel's Arab society are essentially living in fear. And that is terrible. You can't have that. It's because in the bottom line, it's not an Arab problem. It's a national problem. Both the government and the police need to internalize that. We are facing a problem that is is not a problem simply of the Arab community in Israel. It is a problem of Israeli society. When you have uh, uh, gangs in the Arab society and all kinds of things, illegal things going on, you simply can't have that. You cannot have an underground, out of control, that the government's not doing anything about. Something has to be done about it, because not only is it wrong for such a thing to happen, to be going on, these Arab gangs, it's like it's like the, the mafia. Uh, you know, they, it's a government unto itself, and these Arab gangs are becoming like a government unto itself, and they... And they proper organized society, and I'd like to think that Israel is a proper organized society, you simply cannot have a, uh, a group of people who are uncontrolled, that the police are not doing anything about, and they're simply murdering. That's beside other things they do. The protection money of all kinds of other things that's happening in the Arab community. The Arabs are citizens of Israel. They have to take the responsibility of citizens, and we have to protect them as citizens of Israel. Something you don't see headlines about, but it's something that's very real. Something has to be done about it. I'll be back after the break. Want real answers to the big questions of life? Who am I? Why am I here? How can I find lasting happiness? If God is good, why is the world so bad? Don't miss Soul Talk with Rabbi David Aaron. Revealing, inspiring, empowering. Thursdays on Israel News Talk Radio. You're back uh, with Jay Shapiro. I'd like to say a few things about the uh, Arab population in Jerusalem, where I live. The reason I brought it up is uh, I happened to have gone to a hospital here in Jerusalem the other day, and I noticed that although you see a large number of Arabs in the streets here in Jerusalem, and you, uh, you find them, for example, in the restaurants, you find them in the drugstores. A lot of Arab women are druggists. There are a lot of Arab doctors and so forth, but I was in the hospital the other day, and I was waiting in the lobby for someone, and I noticed that the percentage of Arabs in the hospital uh, is really large. It looks like more than half the people going in and out of the hospital for a period of about an hour 
more than half were, were Arabs. And they're treated exactly the same as, of course, as Jewish patients. I understand that uh, there are many Arabs. I've had this experience myself. One time I had to spend a few days in the hospital, and uh, one of my roommates was an Arab, and I asked him why he came to that hospital. There are Arabs, Arab hospitals on the other side of the city, and he said the treatment is much better in the Jewish hospitals. So I want to say a little bit about the Arabs and Jerusalem. Back in 1982, the current Palestinian Authority President, Mahmoud Abbas, submitted a doctoral thesis to a Russian university entitled Connection Between the Nazis and the Leaders of the Zionist Movement Between 1933 and 1945. And in that dissertation for his doctorate, which, by the way, he later, later turned into a book, Abbas, who's now the president of the uh, uh, Palestinian Authority, he wrote that the Zionist movement and its leaders were fundamental partners with the Nazis and equally responsible for the Holocaust. He also wrote that the figure of six million Jews killed was exaggerated and that the number of murdered Jews closer to one million. By the way, it's interesting. I mean, one million also happens to be a lot of murdered innocent people. Now, some may argue that Abbas should not be called a Holocaust denier, since he did acknowledge one million Jews were killed. Instead, they would call him a Holocaust revisionist. Others, however, saying that, to say that claiming number of Jews murders is far below the accepted figure of six million is also a Holocaust denial. So while there may be a debate at whether Abbas should be called a Holocaust denier, and he ne has never unequivocally dissociated himself from this thesis, when it comes to Temple Mount denial, Abbas, uh, as he showed uh, the world during a speech on May 15th at the United Nations, commemorating what they called the Nakba, the Nakba, of course, it's catastrophe. It's an Arabic word for catastrophe, which is the uh, day that the Jewish state came into being. The Arabs considered a catastrophe. Abbas clearly denied any Jewish connection to the Temple Mount, saying that Israel has been digging for 30 years on the site, looking for proof of the existence of the Jewish temples. But according to him, they haven't found anything. Al-Haram al-Sharif, the Arabic name for the Temple Mount, belongs exclusively to the Muslims. Why? Because the Jews have no connection there. That is what Abbas claims. Now, we had Jerusalem Day about a month ago. Thousands of Israelis marched in the annual flag march to the Western Wall to demonstrate Israel's connection to the site and Israel's sovereignty over the city. 56 years after Israel won East Jerusalem and the Temple Mount in a battle that began when Jordan's King Hussein entered the war back in 1967, and King Hussein opened up a third front against Israel 
by shelling Jerusalem, many still feel the need to demonstrate that Israel is sovereign in the city by marching through the city streets and the old city's Muslim quarter. And that's what they did last month. Now, some people can say, why do they have to demonstrate this every year? It's particularly the religious Zionists who do so, by the way. But why it's only religious Zionists, that's a story unto itself. So when you ask yourself, why do we have to every year demonstrate that Jerusalem is a Jewish city? The, the answer is Abbas's speech provided the answer to respond to all those denying any connection between the Jewish people and Jerusalem. Holocaust denial, or whether you want to call it denial or revisionism, and Temple Mount denial are two sides of the same coin, an attempt to raise any need or right a Jewish presence anywhere in this corner of the world, Jerusalem. If the Holocaust did not happen, or not at the scope commonly believed, there's no reason for safe haven for the Jews. If there are no temples on the Temple Mount, then even the Jews need a safe refuge, they could find it somewhere else, maybe in Africa. And Abbas also said in his speech, he took the... Uh, he took the British to task for issuing the Balfour Declaration back in 1917, and he claimed Britain had wanted to get rid of the Jews. Uh, given so if they, Britain wanted, really wanted to get to the, rid of the Jews, they could have given them an island somewhere else, according to him. This is just one of the ways in which Jerusalem, which is Judaism's most holy city, and by the way, the third holiest city in Islam epitomizes the Israeli-Arab conflict. You can ask yourself, why did Hamas fire rockets toward the capital in Jerusalem Day in 2021, which I remember quite clearly. We were dancing in downtown Jerusalem. We were told to quickly go home or go into shelters because Hamas was firing rockets. And they threatened to do the same this year. And the reason is because, because Jerusalem Day and your annual flag march with all its demonstration is a tangible display of Jewish sovereignty in a city to which Abbas and others believe the Jews have no historic connection. They are simply wrong. The By the way, Jerusalem is called, uh, in Arabic, it's called Al-Quds, which means the holy. Fifty-six years ago, the Jerusalem became the undivided capital of Israel. But is it really? According to the Central Bureau of Statistics, Jerusalem population today numbers 984,500 residents. Over 900,000, almost a million. Jerusalem is now Israel's biggest city. Of those 984,500, 386,000 are Arabs, which is 39.2%. 600,000 are Jews, which is 60.8%. And of the Jewish population, 
285,500 are Haredim. That's 29%. So almost 40% of the city are Arabs. Almost 61% are Jews. And of the Jewish population, almost a third of what we call Haredim. Mostly, these populations live in separate neighborhoods and study in separate schools. While Arabs move freely in West Jerusalem, Jews for the most part are afraid to walk or make a wrong turn and end up in one of the Arab parts of the city. This is the reality here. It is a city packed full of the hopes, visions, and aspirations of so many people for so long. There is no way a flesh-and-blood place could live up all, the, all this hype. It has been placed by so many for so long on such a high pedestal that it must inevitably disappoint. It is all too real, all too human, not the Jerusalem of the dreams and imagination. It is united and unified under Israeli sovereignty, but unfortunately... And I say this really sadly, this unity, Israeli sovereignty, is mostly in name only. These are the facts on the ground. The truth of the matter is, Jerusalem, in many senses, is a microcosm of the country. So many of the conflicts the country faces are played out here in Jerusalem. Jews versus Arab. Haredi versus secular, nationalist, very humanist. All these things are played out every day on the streets of Jerusalem. What's interesting is that before the Six-Day War, when the city was liberated, the city for most Israelis and Jews was an afterthought on a practical, everyday level, not on a spiritual plane. Jerusalem was really a backward city until the Six-Day War. The UN Partition Resolution in 1947 envisioned an international status for Jerusalem, and this caused only a mild reaction throughout the Jewish world. Nothing, no UN cry was raised about having a Jewish state without Jewish sovereignty over Jerusalem. The idea of Jewish sovereignty outside Jerusalem was consolation for the lack of sovereignty over the city of Jerusalem itself. People accepted this. I remember this myself. The people were not upset about the fact that the Jerusalem was not was was more more or less overlooked. They were so glad that Israel had become a state. The fact that Jerusalem was just a backward city in that state didn't bother anybody. It's also worth noting, by the way. The founder of Zionism, Theodore Herzl, did not fall in love with the city when he visited. He, he came to Jerusalem in 1898, and he wrote in his diary about the dirt, the poverty, and uh, the resident's obsession with the hereafter. And the city didn't work its magic on David Ben-Guri when he arrived in Palestine in 1906. But whatever ambivalence to the city displayed by Jews to earthly Jerusalem, it was transformed into devotion after the 1967 war. All this ambivalence melted away when the 
Paratroopers conquered the old city, and the commander of the 55th Paratroopers Brigade, Mordechai Gur, utters famous words, Harhabayat biyadenu, the Temple Mount is in our hands. The liberation of the war in 1967 did something very profound. It stirred something deep inside the Jewish soul, a sense of enormous gratitude that this generation, of all the generations over the past 2,000 years, this generation was the one to merit witnessing and being part of a return of Jewish sovereignty over this city. And because it, that's why it still bothers me to this day that the rest of the, of the country doesn't celebrate uh, Jerusalem Day the way it is celebrated by here, the people living in Jerusalem. So the intervening 56 years since the Six-Day War have had an impact and the difficult and complex reality in the city has somewhat tampered down the initial order for it, and there are some who would readily redivide the city. But, of course, that's a minority who would do so. The uh, the slogan, Don't Divide Jerusalem, still resonates loudly among the Israeli public, so loudly that it led Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, to victory over Shimon Peres in 1996. Peres was publicly said he was willing to redivide the city, and Sippy Livni had said that in 2009, and she lost the elections. Polls consistently show most Israelis say it is important to retain a unified Jerusalem under Israeli sovereignty in any possible accord with the Palestinians. Now, for the first time, the Oslo process put Jerusalem on the table in negotiations, and there have been various plans since then, since the uh, 1990s, in which dividing was this, the city was discussed. Ehud Barak was the prime minister, and he tried to do so in 2000 and kicked out of office after only a few months. Uh, and he was replaced by Ariel Sharon. So, when discussing United Jerusalem, the question really is what constitutes Jerusalem? The polls mentioned. Ask about dividing of Jerusalem generally refer to the heart of Jerusalem, which is the old city and the city of David. It's doubtful, however, that if you break it down further and ask about the different areas like the Shuafat refugee camps and some of the outlying Arab villages like Kafra Akkab or Umtuba, the sentiment about never divided the city would be the same. Israelis are attached to parts of East Jerusalem taken in the Six-Day War. That includes the Old City, the Temple Mount, Jewish Quarter, the Mount of Olives, and the City of David, much less the places incorporated afterward like Umtuba and the Shurfat refugee camp. The, um, a professor of geography at the university uh, said several years ago, Jerusalem is not just a city, it's a symbol, it's an icon. Where does an icon end? And actually a very pertinent question. Over the last century, what has been defined as Jerusalem has grown enormously. Biblical Jerusalem encompasses the Temple Mount and the City of David. 
During the first and second temple periods, the city grew and actually reached its peak during the second temple period under Herod Agrippa, who was Herod's grandson. Ottoman Jerusalem was the old city and some neighbors outside. After, immediately after the war in 1967, Israel annexed East Jerusalem and dramatically expanded the city's limits. Over at night, it went from an area of 44 square kilometers uh, and to 114 square kilometers. So it's interesting, by the way, the Babylonian Talmud discussed the area of Jerusalem in the tractate Bava Batra. There's a discussion about the sides of Jerusalem with Rabbah, one of the, uh, 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 in the Talmud, quote, a certain elder as saying that the size of initial Jerusalem was about 19 square kilometers. In, by the way, in addition, Jerusalem went from having six Palestinian villages inside its municipal boundaries before the Six-Day War, and there were 28 Palestinian villages inside the boundaries of Jerusalem today. There were many reasons the municipal waters of Jerusalem were extended after the war. Now, the first reason was demographic and territorial. Israel wanted to be able to build in, to Jerusalem but to do so, more area was needed. And there are Jewish neighborhoods that didn't exist before the Six-Day War, that exist now. Now, it, and if, if the listeners are familiar with uh, Jerusalem, there's Ramot, Piskatzev, Harchoma, Kilo, French Hill, and all of these neighborhoods flourishing neighborhoods on lands that were annexed after 1967. The land was needed to build for Jews, but in the process, many Palestinians were also incorporated into the percentage of Arabs in Jerusalem under Israeli control. The number of Arabs in Jerusalem in 1966 under Israeli control was 1%. It went to 26% after the war, and so just over 39% today. Today, there are some 340,000 Arabs in East Jerusalem. Where an independent city would be far bigger than the largest Arab town in, this, in Israel, which, by the way, is Nazareth. It's, there are 80,000 Israeli Arabs living in and Nazareth, there are 340,000 Arabs living in East Jerusalem. So strategic reasons were also involved in the decision so, to so drastically expand Jerusalem's territory after the Six-Day War, because they wanted, for example, to include the mountain ridges surrounding the city and to protect it. The, and there was also a desire that at that time to take in an area once owned by Jews that the Jews were kicked out of in, in, uh, in, the, in the war in 1948, the, the and the place there's a place called Atarot where an old British airport was located. As a matter of uh, the uh, Israel aircraft industries had a plant there. I, I used to work there. Another historic decision at the time had to do with administration of the holy sites. Israel would have sovereignty, but administration would be in the hands of each religious group. Now, those decisions 
both to annex large areas to the city and to put administration or holy sites in the hands of the respective religions were made in right after the Six-Day War. So they have reverberated for good and for bad down to this very day, 56 years later. We live in a very complicated reality, but it is a reality (laughs) that we have to live with. I just wanted to review this, a little bit of the history for the listeners, give an idea what Jerusalem is like, what it's like to live in Jerusalem. I'll be back after the break. Hello, my name is Noemi Schlosser from Antwerp, Belgium, and when I want to connect to Israel, I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this is Leslie Ann Stoffel from Vancouver, Canada. Being an international blogger, when I need information about Israel, I go to Israel News Talk Radio. My name is Rashid, and I'm an Arab man who loves Israel, and so of course, I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this is Bob Dubrow from Washington, D.C., and I get all my important news from Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Andreas from the north of Germany, and I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey there, my name is Rachamim from Wisconsin, USA, and I enjoy Israel News Talk Radio so much I leave it on in the background and listen all day. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Hi, you're back with Jay Shapiro. On this uh, last part of the program this week, I want to touch upon a number of items. I'll see how much time I have. Uh, They're not related to each other, but they're the things that are pretty much under the headlines, and I think that the uh, listeners should be aware of them. The first item, which is uh, fairly important, is the fact that the United States plans to rejoin UNESCO next month. Now, UNESCO is a UN agency that deals with educational, scientific, and cultural matters. Now, the United States pulled out of UNESCO about five years ago, and when the United States pulled out, so did uh, Israel back in 2019. Uh, the original reason for the withdrawal for leaving UNESCO was the American law prohibiting Washington, Washington from funding institutions that recognize states that don't meet international standards of statehood. Now, that, that rule still, uh, still stands. The United States won't fund institutions that recognize states that don't meet uh, international standards of state, or that's that's a that's a bottom line condition. Now, the UNESCO has not withdrawn its admittance back in 2011 of something called the State of Palestine. Uh, state of Palestine doesn't exist. So, uh, the uh, Congress approved a waiver back in December. Now, for Israel. Being a member of an institution that recognizes the existence of a Palestinian state that doesn't exist is a really serious problem and could influence the way that the international community looks at the Palestinian Authority when, when the Palestinian Authority doesn't really, is not a state. The Palestinians, on the other hand, 
have used their membership in UNESCO to do something really against the Jewish people. They've used their membership to deny Jewish history in Jerusalem and deny Jewish history in other places in Israel. UN, UNESCO resolutions in, uh, on the holy city, Jerusalem, only used Islamic terms for places like the Temple Mount and the Western Wall, and when they have do an accounting of Jerusalem's history, they start with Islam, which is a religion founded long after Christianity and long after Judaism. Judaism came before Christianity, Christianity came before, before Islam, and yet when they talk about the city of Jerusalem, they only mention Islamic sites. In addition, the old city of Jerusalem is listed as an endangered historical site registered not to Israel, not even to the Palestinian uh, Authority, by the way. The, the old city of Jerusalem was listed as an endangered historical site registered to Jordan, which controlled the eastern part of the city for 19 years and registered with UNESCO over a decade after Israel forced it out. Israel, Israel kicked Jordan out in 1967, and a decade later, Jordan listed these holy sites in Jerusalem as belonging to them. So rather than protecting culture and history, UNESCO contributes to its erasure, erasing Israeli history. So, uh, in other words, they have decided that the city of Jerusalem belongs to only one group, to Islam, not to the Jews and not to the Christians. So the, the UNESCO is a problematic organization. The, the U.S. left five years ago. It's going back in for whatever reason. Uh, and uh, apparently Israel is going to join the U.S. in uh, and going back into UNESCO, the uh, the so Israel stands on this uh, this uh, status is sort of inconsistent. Jerusalem has pretty much avoided joining or or withdrawn from many UN institutions, which include, for example, the International Court of Justice, UN Rights uh, Human Rights Council. At the same time, Israel is active in the UN General Assembly. Uh, where some of the worst resolutions are passed against Israel. So <coughs> Israel is somewhat inconsistent in its um, behavior and its attitude toward the United Nations. So the bottom line, I think that uh, Israel has a an on-and-off relationship with the United States. The uh, I think that the bottom line... Uh, although there's an automatic majority in votes against Israel, and many uh, UN institutions are biased against Israel, so uh, nobody can expect that by staying in the UN, Israel could sway these bodies to be more in its favor. That's not true. The reason to stay in the UN is that despite its many flaws, it grants a significant measure of legitimacy to the member states. 
and Israel does not want to withdraw from the international arena, and it requires legitimacy. So Israel is going to stay in the United Nation. Okay, that's the way it is. Now I go on to a uh, another subject, but one that's way way under the headlines. There was an article in the paper about a month ago, and uh, and Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager is a well known conservative talk show is very popular you can hear him uh, here on the internet and uh, he said if and I quote if America abandons Israel and the Jews that is the end of America as we know it unquote now Dennis Prager is well known for his deep connection with the Christian right in America. And he expressed concern that America was abandoning the Judeo-Christian values on which the United States was founded and was therefore at risk of losing its support for Israel. Ultimately, it will lose its rank as a superpower. He said, and I quote, Christians support Israel because they cite God's promise to Abraham that those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. They happen to be correct. Those who have cursed Jews have ended up cursed. America has been the biggest blessing to Jews since Darius in ancient Persia, and America has been a blessed country. Now, Darius I, Darius the Great, authorized the Jews to rebuild the temple after Cyrus, his predecessor, decreed their right of return to Jerusalem from the Babylonian exile more than 2,000 years ago. So, um, um, Dennis Prager made these comments uh, uh, recently about I think about two months ago, against the background of several surveys that have shown both an American disconnected America is, is disconnecting from religion, and at the same time there is skyrocketing anti-Semitism and anti-Israel sentiment in the United States. So. Um, so the anti-Semitism and anti-Israel sentiment are growing. At the same time, Americans are disconnecting more from religion. However, the uh, much critical sentiment toward Israel is enunciated by groups identifying as Christian. Now, there's something called the National Religious Broadcasters Conference. They held a conference called NRB, National Religious Broadcasters, course, which is an association of, of evangelical broadcasters that tends to be far more pro-Israel nowadays than other Christian groups. The A majority, something like 86% of white evangelical Protestants have a favorable view of Israel, Israel's people, and 42% have a very favorable view, according to a Pew Research Center report last year. So, so these people are pro-Israel. Now, then, uh, interesting, 
In the same Pew Research Center survey back in 2019, they found that more than 10% fewer people described themselves as Christian than rather as a decade before. And a 2021 Gallup poll found that 47% of Americans belonged to houses of worship in 2020, but there were 70% in 1999. So in that sense, the United States became a less religious country. So in 2022, the Anti-Defamation League reported the highest number of anti-Semitic incidents in the United States since it recorded them back, started recording them back in 1979. So apparently, according to Prager, the reason so many kids are leaving religion is because they're brainwashed secularly in their schools. The schools are secular. God is not in the American schools. But ignoring God and ignoring religion is a form of hostility. Most Jews and Christians do not have a clue how to explain their religion to their children. Likewise, Americans fail to explain America to their children. So why are children not patriotic today? That's very interesting that Dennis Prager said that the People don't know how to explain their religion to their children, and then Americans don't know how to explain to America and how great America is to their children. So he went on to say, it's very interesting, he said the idol worship of our time is experts, and therefore now is the time for Orthodox Jews and Christian believers to work together to reclaim the value system they say they care so much about. Jews need to understand that the alliance for so many Christians is genuine. And he went on to point out the extensive Jewish and Israeli contingency at this year's National Religious Broadcasters Conference, which has grown over the last decade by leaps and bounds. For example, more than 700 people signed up for a night to celebrate Israel. So many Jews are afraid that Christians want to convert them. You get people who don't like Christians, and mostly left-wing Gentiles and Jews who are naive in their understanding of what Christians really want to do. They, they, they say that the Christians only support Israel because they believe if all the Jews gather back in Israel, then Jesus will come again. But Prager went on to say, Christians understand they cannot do anything to hasten the arrival of Jesus. On the other hand, they support Israel because they believe in it as, as the, the Torah is the word of God, and God has said that the land of Israel belongs to Israel. So that is where, according to Dennis Prager, Jews, observant Jews, and really observant Christians can align with each other. When a Christian, and I'm quoting Prager again, when Christians see a Jew who takes the Torah seriously, they're happy. He said, it's the non-Orthodox Jews who tend to be more suspicious of Christians. The Jews who most believe in the divine origin of the Torah are more likely to work with Christians, and that's a comfort. And he went on to say, there is no Judeo-Christian theology. Because if there were, everyone would be Christian or Jewish. But the two religions do share the basis of the Torah. 
So he said, I'm not an optimist nor a pessimist. An optimist does not fight because it thinks it will all work out. A pessimist doesn't fight because it did not believe it can work. He said, I all I know is that I'm a religious Jew and I'm obligated to fight for Jewish values and I'm obligated to fight for America and American values, which really match each other very much. So this uh, another this is another item as I said, it's under the headlines and you and Dennis Prager is a very well known commentator. I've watched his programs, I listened to him, a very intelligent guy. And uh, in the bottom line, he's saying, is the, if the United States abandons Israel, that is the end of America as we, as we know it. And that is a pretty powerful statement. Another topic that I want to talk about, not related to anything else I've said so far, to uh, the United States is complaining when Israel attacks Gaza. The United States makes Israel to just stop without achieving the goals and strategies put in place. Because the, the reason Israel has occasion to attack Gaza, because its goal is not to harm the Gazans. Its, our, its goal is to keep sit, Israeli citizens safe and to keep our country intact. Israel is not indiscriminately bombing the Gaza Strip in anger or even in retaliation which would be immoral. Israel's strategies and goals have been called into action because of the hundreds and hundreds of indiscriminate rockets from Gaza Strip that are terrorizing Israeli Israelis. Israel's objective is to degrade the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, to degrade its leadership, its munitions, and its ability to strike Israel. Not Hamas, but the PIJ, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Israel warned Hamas not to get involved and stay out of the, of the rockets. For the most part, they have. So Israel has pretty much limited the targeting to the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. So for those terrorists frightening hundreds of thousands of Israelis over and over again as a huge success, even rockets that land in an open field are considered successful. It should go without saying that the terrorists gain much more satisfaction when Israelis are injured or killed by their rocket attacks. The Gaza's terrorists truly believe that frightening Israels will make Israel capitulate. They believe in their hearts and souls that their acts of terror will force Israelis to leave Israel and Israel will be gone and wipe itself off the map. It, it's an, it, this is the way these terrorists think. The, uh, the, 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 that is why this Palestinian condemned Palestinians who want to get along with Israel. They even condemned the Palestinian authorities collaborating, and therefore they, they should be punished. So what is really happening here is the West cannot comprehend this mindset. mindset. And a, uh, the Westerners simply don't understand what's going on in the mind of these Islamists. The... Uh, the uh, it, it's really, it's really something. 
when Israel is going to attack Gaza, Israel warns the people of Gaza before an air attack. The uh, so when Israel does it, Israel uh, Israeli planes go over and they drop leaflets telling the uh, telling the Gazans that they're going to attack and they're going to have pinpoint attacks against terrorists. And they warn the people in Gaza to, to stay out of the way. It's a, and Hamas in turn threatens that anyone who leaves their homes after the warning will be killed as Israeli collaborators. It is the nature of these terrorist organizations. To the Western mindset, these things do not make sense. All kinds of game theory does not factor into the analysis. The objective here is not win-win. For the terrorists, it is a principle of all or nothing at all. If I cannot win, you cannot win. I'll do everything to make certain the situation is a gargantuan mess. And the U.S. wants Israel to stop. But Israelis are terrorized, but they're not packing up and leaving. If anything, terrorists have successfully moved the Israeli political uh, politics mostly in the right. The Israeli left, which was formerly known as the peace camp, has totally imploded and pretty much disappeared from the political map. There's really no left anymore in Israel. The center and center-right is a real political force, and it won't bow to terrorism threats. So I don't believe that these terrorist organizations are going to change their strategy. It, it would be nice if the Palestinians on the street, the masses, will create a ground, groundswell large and forceful enough to topple these extremists, gain power, and insert a strategy that could end up being win-win. Right now, it is a very bad strategy Strategy being followed by Hamas. The people are afraid. Israel strikes back in pinpoint strikes because we have to keep our people safe. That is our responsibility. And essentially, we're talking about two different worlds. It's at these two worlds that most Westerners simply cannot even comprehend. And that's one of, the, uh, one of the problems. At any rate, thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. Jay Shapiro, signing off. Take care of yourselves.